Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, welcome again uh, and welcome back to another 2023 episode. We're really excited to be back in full swing. Um, and we're also very excited to uh, welcome back to the show and welcome back to America, Dr. Michael Hunziker. Hey, man, thanks for coming in on a uh, Friday morning. It's great to see you both. And thanks so much for having me for the third, fourth time. Yeah, man. Yeah. So we were uh, talking as we're warm. Oh, wait, and I'm also here with William, by the way. <laughs> so yeah, hey, what's up, dude? <laughs> um, but as you can see, I'm really excited to get into this conversation um, because uh, there's a lot going on. Um, and thus having Dr. Hunziker uh, here on the show with us to talk about some of these things. But um, for those who are paying attention to the news uh, and this actually hit on CNN, which I'm surprised that it made it all the way to that mainstream. Um, but uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, did a war game, got a really huge grant to run a war game. And as surprise to no one, going to war with China over Taiwan is going to suck for everybody. Um and so I want to unpack that because I think there's a lot more there than the uh, no shit aspect of it. Uh, but then also, too, Dr. Hunziker just got back last week from Taiwan, has wonderful story. So why don't we start there? Because um, you were providing some really interesting context of the Taiwanese culture uh, that I didn't even really fully grasp. So, hey, Ben, welcome to the show and go. Floor is yours. <laughs> Well, it's great to be back, both obviously on the podcast, but also back here in the United States. And like you mentioned, I, I was fortunate enough, just spent about 17 days in Taiwan, split my time between the capital and Miaoli, which is a city kind of in central Taiwan, and it's been my first trip back since the pandemic. So it was a really great opportunity. I, I'm not sure if we mentioned this in past podcasts, but my wife is Taiwanese-American, also an army officer. And so you know, I've been going back and forth to Taiwan a couple times a year for the last 20 or so years. So great to catch back up with family. And actually, I'm really glad that you want to start the conversation because it's so easy for the discourse in Washington inside the Pentagon to just kind of turn all of this into like a, a war game, like we're talking about numbers. But really, at the end of the day, we're talking about human beings. We're talking about culture. And I've been writing a lot and thinking a lot about Taiwan, especially during the pandemic. And so even for me, kind of getting back and actually setting foot in Taiwan and like seeing the people and seeing the city and really visualizing what it would mean for 23.5 million human beings if this thing actually went down. We went out to the coast in Yali and I stood there looking over the Taiwan Strait, you know, just kind of sends shivers up your back, just realizing how catastrophically bad it could be. And it is important, regardless of kind of where you fall on the policy spectrum here or on the defense analysis of just kind of keeping that human story, that human context, that culture uh, in mind. I would say, and we were talking a bit before the podcast, you know, one of the really cool things I got to do is I got to go to my wife's grandfather's 99th birthday. And I mean, it's just amazing for anyone to live to be 99, but especially somebody who has kind of the story and the background and the experiences he did. This is a man who was born and raised, spent his entire life in Miaoli, in Taiwan. Uh, he lived through the Japanese occupation. He lived through the Second World War and actually spent part of it in Japan, being bombed by the Americans, came back, lived through the Cold War, lived through the authoritarian rule of the Chiang Kai-shek regime, his family was actually integral to the democratization movement. It thrust his daughter into politics. She was a cabinet member and a member of the Legislative UN under Chen Shui-bian and the DPP. She's still an advisor, an advisor to, to President Tsai. Uh, and so he just has these remarkable life stories. 
Plus, he's just this cantankerous 99-year-old man who could treat most of us under the table. But this, all of this also gives us context on why you have to remote start your car. <laughs> because, so you are a policy, strategic policy guru for America, married to a Taiwanese-American army officer who comes from a family who has many, many inroads into the democratization of Taiwan. Dude, like, do you want a target on your back? Is like, is this your whole thing, former Marine? Well, well, first of all, I, I would, I would be flattered if anybody would call me a guru. So I don't even think I make the targeting list in China. But let's just say, even if and when Macau opens up, or maybe it has, I'm probably not going to be gambling there anytime soon. <laughs> Well, dude, this is fascinating. So, yeah, let's get into um, your grandfather-in-law. Um, so one of the aspects of Taiwan culture, because I just, I, I don't, you know, this very uh, Western-centric mindset um, and almost American exceptionalist is like Taiwan was completely, like, was just a deserted island until the Cultural Revolution and then all of the uh, Chinese nationalists had to flee to this, like, utopia where oh, there's nobody already here. No, there was a lot, obviously, uh, going on. So if you could talk about a little bit of, like, how your grandfa grandfather-in-law, like, grew up. Like, was he Chinese? Like, what did what was his deal? Yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating, fabulous question. So, so yes, uh, the beautiful island of Formosa, which we now call Taiwan, and we used to call Republic of China, um, it has had people on it for a really long time. In fact, there were <laughs> aboriginals living there for thousands of years. Uh, People of Chinese descent began migrating to Taiwan, I believe it was like the 16th century. They now actually make up the majority of the population. In the 19th century, there was sort of a surge of another group from China called the Hakka, and they had kind of been migrants even in China and ultimately found refuge in Taiwan. Uh, that's actually sort of the cultural background, the ancestry of my wife's family, and many of them settled in central Taiwan in a city you know, now known as Miaoli. So that's kind of my grandfather's background. He was the youngest of, I believe, five siblings, which means his family grew up poor. And as the youngest of the siblings in a poor family, he was impoverished. Uh, and so, yeah, the simple answer is, what did he consider? He considered himself poor. I don't know that he, as a farmer, really just focusing on kind of living day-to-day -day substance style, uh, ever worried about these larger questions of am I Chinese, am I Japanese? Uh, as a child, he grew up in the Japanese occupation which means like many people of his generation, he actually is fluent in Japanese and very identifies very closely culturally with the Japanese. And I think this is a really important strand to kind of remember as we think about potential future involvement of Japan and Taiwan. I think there is that cultural affinity between the two. Uh, Japan ruled with a, air quotes, relatively light touch in Taiwan and kind of now that time has passed, that that uh, occupation is, is, is remembered somewhat... Uh, Fondly, I guess, is the word I would use. It wasn't sort of the experience, say, that the Koreans had. During the Second World War, of course, Japan's at war with the United States, uh, and it it took a lot of conscripts and, uh, for lack of a better term, slave labor from Taiwan and brought it to Japan. Uh, so my wife's grandfather actually spent some time in Japan working in Japanese factories. He was bombed by the Americans during the war. At the end of the war, they actually tried to conscript him into the Japanese military, thankfully for my family. Uh, that did not happen. The war ended and he went back to Taiwan. Of course, this is when Chiang Kai-shek is now finishing or losing the civil war against Mao. And so here's the really important thing to remember. Most Taiwanese really did not think of themselves as Chinese at that point. If anything, you know, most of them had lived a life under Japanese rule. Uh, the United States, air quotes again, gives Taiwan back 
to China. Chiang Kai-shek loses the war. He flees with about 1.5 million of his followers. Uh, so you know, we're talking an extreme minority of people then come to Taiwan between like 1947 and 1949. Uh, but they got all the money, they got all the guns. And so really then they declare themselves China. And this is how we play that weird bizarro game where for a while the Republic of China is known as China. We just pretend this kind of big landmass with a billion people isn't China. And then we flip this around in 1979. Uh, I think a really important part of that story, though, is also the democratization process. And so, you know, my grandfather, I think I can say, my wife's grandfather, I can safely say, really wasn't that involved in politics um, until his eldest daughter married a uh, he was really a leader in kind of the free speech movement in Taiwan, and he had been arrested towards the end of the KMT's authoritarian rule period, put in jail, was released from jail, immediately took back up with sort of free speech uh, activities, and the KMT came for him a second time, and he literally said, like, over my dead body. Uh, and when they surrounded the office in which he was publishing his free speech magazine, he then lit himself on fire. Um, and it was a Horrible experience. My wife's cousin, you know, she she was literally in the office earlier that day before her, her father set himself on fire. So it's this very traumatic experience for the family. Uh, but it also had the unintended positive effect of thrusting my wife's aunt into politics. And then she became a sort of leading member of the DPP, the opposition party that ultimately took power in, in 2000 and, and found her way in government. So at this point, then my, you know, my my wife's grandfather, I think, begins to very clearly identify both with the DPP, but also uh, as Taiwanese as this distinct national identity. And I'm sure listeners are quite aware that that is kind of a transformation that has been slowly unfolding, not just in my wife's family, but really across the entire country to the point that I think, you know, it's now safe to say the average, certainly younger person in Taiwan and even older identify either as both Chinese and Taiwanese or, or exclusively Taiwanese. I think that's such a great, I mean, I'm so glad that we're able to highlight that. Um, and that's really so interesting. We have seen how national ident how powerful national identity is. I mean, obviously, um, you know, coming out of twenty years of war, where that was something we were hoping was going to be instilled that, like, hey, if we could just like alleviate tyranny and take this like threat of death uh, in 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 being an opposer, if you can peacefully oppose and not have to fear for your death, then we'll build this national identity or this national identity will like come out, it will blossom out from uh, democratization and, and, and civil rights. Um, it didn't really happen, obviously, or it happened in ways that we didn't quite anticipate. Uh, and there was still fracturing and tribalization and thus, uh, you know, fast forward to ISIS and Taliban version 3.0 or whatever we're at now. Um, and then how we're even seeing a little bit here in the states um, where everybody's sort of picking their team. Um, so I think it's really important when we look then uh, at what does it mean for us to go against an authoritarian regime where, granted, they're on the razor's edge of nationalism, but I mean, it, at least within the powerful elites, it's really there. Um, and then so then you have this massive underdog and then so what will their resolve look like? And I think we have to then look to like, well, what does their, where's their nationalist sentiment or where do they, what do they identify themselves with? I mean, you raise a number of terrific points. I'm sure it would take us hours just to unpack a few of them and I'm not well equipped to even unpack, I think many of them. 
I guess I would offer two, well, three thoughts. Number one, I, you're totally right. Identity is something I think in the United States for many years we took for granted, like Vic, you and I growing up. I think younger people in America now recognize how potent an issue it can be. Uh, I think it is a, a double-edged sword in Taiwan's case. On the one hand, national identity is emerging organically in a way that, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were struggling to build, but we, we clearly couldn't like recreate the conditions that it's taking off on its own. The challenge, of course, is this puts China in a very difficult position. I don't want to be sympathetic or apologetic for the regime in Beijing, but if we put ourselves in Beijing's shoes and Beijing sees Taiwan as being inexorably a part of what they consider the Chinese homeland, then what they see is this irreconcilable force sort of taking hold. And it's on this trajectory that they find deeply problematic. And we disagree and the Taiwanese disagree, but still, you know, wars happen because great powers have irreconcilable states, period, have irreconcilable differences and they can't find a way to resolve them any other way. The other side of the issue, though, of the equation, uh, although Taiwanese national identity has thrived organically, it also thrived in an environment, number one, where China really for many years was not in a military position to make good on its threats. And number two, there's kind of this tacit assumption the United States was going to protect Taiwan. The real question, and this maybe can be a transition to the CSIS organ, uh, we, the United States, are now in a position where it is questionable whether we could protect at all, and even if we protect, would it end up being sort of a pyrrhic victory for Taiwan and the United States? So we could do it, but at tremendous loss. Which then comes to the question, the Taiwanese have an organic sense of national identity, one that could put the United States and Taiwan at cross purposes with China, but are the Taiwanese willing to fight for that identity? You know, that is truly a existential level question. And I have to be honest, I am deeply jealous of people who have these clear convictions as to, you know, what Taiwan will do or what Taiwan will not do. I've been studying it for many years. I've been back and forth in Taiwan. My family is half Taiwanese. I, I really don't know the answer to the question. I think anybody who pretends that they do uh, probably doesn't know the problem set enough. I don't even know if most Taiwanese really know at the end of the day. Like most of us assume the Ukrainians wouldn't fight for themselves and they really, they shocked us. It could go either way. I guess what a lot of my work has been focusing on is saying, listen, I, I don't know what the national will and resolve will ultimately turn. Will they be willing to fight for that separate identity or will they be deep pragmatists and say, listen, I love the identity, but I love living more, both of which are completely reasonable, rational answers. Uh, but at the end of the day, if they want to fight, they need to have the wherewithal and the actual capability for doing so. And that's where I grow deeply skeptical. Yeah, I think when we look at like some of our previous conversations and some of the articles we explored, one of the things that like, I guess using Ukraine was is a good um a uh, sort of um, mirror to look at this uh, problem set because when uh, Russia first started amassing troops, um, the Ukrainians were like, ah, it's just saber rattling, man. This is what it's like to grow up here. You heard much of the same thing from the Taiwanese <clears throat> every time there's a blockade or a flyover or whatever. And I guess it gets to what you were just mentioning is like, where does that, where does like sort of nationalist, identity and then pragmatism like where where do those two things either merge or and, and once again like you know if we were to look and, uh, and this will bleed over into the war game but like if anybody had war gamed the russian invasion of ukraine i don't think that the results would have shown 11th almost 12 months later ukraine is actually getting old territory back I, yes, I, I, I know quite a few experts on that part of the world, and I think all of them, and I being barely an amateur, not even an amateur, uh, everyone was, was surprised by how that war has, has turned out. 
and you know, it's not like we didn't spend a lot of time wargaming and modeling the Russian military and its capabilities, and it just it completely blindsided us. And so at the end of the day, and maybe this talks to some of the things we'll get to on the war game, but wargaming certainly has uses and functions, uh, but it's always built on assumptions. We should always question those assumptions. We should always question the marching orders that were given to the war gamers, because uh, this can lead war games in all sorts of ways that can be actually deeply misleading. But the, all right, it's like with college football. At the end of the day, Alabama on paper may have been the better team, but it wasn't in the college playoff. This is why they play the games. Um, let's just hope a war over Taiwan is not a game we play and we can just quibble and dither over uh, war game results. Yeah, yeah. Pick six is a lot more entertaining to watch than like, oh, an entire di division yeah. is annihilated. <laughs> I, I, I do have to say, I am, I, as a former service member, and you you know, you know and I both know what it's like to lose people, I am utterly sick and tired of every war game glibly saying, we lost a carrier. I'm like, do you know how many human beings are on one of these yeah. carriers and what it would be like for the national psyche? And I don't know if it breaks our will or if it causes us to throw haymakers. I kind of think the latter. But either way, what that would mean to the American people to lose one of these aircraft carriers, you are right. They are just big targets in modern warfare. But, man, let's let's. Well, stop it's like saying, defending. like, Oh, Carlsbad doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, like, I, what the hell do you mean Carlsbad doesn't exist anymore? Yeah, it it would it would it is, and I will I will say, and this is a whole separate conversation, but I've been working on this project about allied perceptions of American reputation and credibility, and I will say I think no matter how much it shocks the American people, like the shock waves it will send through Seoul and Canberra and Tokyo, I mean, will be just unfathomable. Yeah, yeah. Well, part of the war game involved also uh, like Japanese involvement as well and allied, and that and that's uh, has has interesting implications for how this how it will go down. The fact that it won't be just between the United States, China, and Taiwan, and that it will potentially involve other uh, other you know not only say third parties but other other involved nations as well. Sure, I think what well, because you had mentioned like when you you mentioned some of the uh, tribal origins of Formosa when you when you're talking Hakka, I mean you're talking Fijians, right? Uh, no, uh, Fujian is a different province. So a lot of the people who came from Fujian came much earlier. Uh, the Hakka, uh, they migrated, I think, from northern China down through southern China. Uh, I see. Okay, different Hakka. Okay, uh, not that like not the Hakka of like the Maori. No, no, no. Peoples. It's a, yeah, it's okay. it's a it, it's a Han people, but they were literally the the colloquial term for them is like guests. So they've always felt like guests in other nations, and then they they came to Taiwan, and early on, even then, they were guests, and they kind of settled in the part of Taiwan that nobody else really wanted at the time. Yeah. I guess the only reason I mentioned it was because, like, and like you were mentioning, um, William is like obviously Australia, New Zealand, and Philippines, Indonesia, make like all these countries have a vested interest in how much um, territory within the island chains China starts to take by force. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: is I like if if you held a gun to my head and said, "Would Canberra?" Militarily intervene in a war over Taiwan. Would would Tokyo? I I would you know I would say yes probably. Uh, but I don't know that that's like I certainly wouldn't say it's a hundred percent probability. I don't actually even know where about fifty percent I would put the probability because uh, we have to remember part of deterrence is posturing. So you're going to want to posture. You're also going to want to hedge. And so as I think potentially terrifying as a Chinese occupation of Taiwan could be, especially for Japan, uh, there's still the Chinese economy to be dealt with, and there are still the risks of a Pyrrhic victory. So even though we defeat China and put them, it's not like China's going to go away. Mm -hmm. And it's not like Xi Jinping doesn't realize, well, if I don't eventually take Taiwan, now that I have started down this path, I'm hanging from a tree. And so I think everybody recognizes this. And so I do think a lot of what we're hearing is what we in Washington want to hear out of our allies. And I think our allies are really good at telling us what we want to hear. 
But in particular, in looking at what's coming out of the two plus two in Washington, you know, right now, the Japanese Minister of Defense and the, our Defense Secretary, et cetera, et cetera, all meeting and the President and Prime Minister all meeting uh, actually today. Um, you know, most of what I'm hearing is Japan is taking its own defense more seriously. I don't know that we can necessarily extrapolate from that. That means it's willing to fight for Taiwan. Those are two yeah. relatively different questions. And people might point out, well, yeah, they're doing it in Okinawa. I'm like, of course they're doing it in Okinawa because Okinawa is going to be very vulnerable were they to lose Taiwan. But just because you're hardening your facilities and abilities to defend Okinawa, it's a very different question than projecting power to assist the United States. So I just, I, I you know, I think our allies will take their cues from ourselves. Uh, I'm not 110% sure exactly what Washington would do, depending on who's sitting in the White House when this all goes down. But I just, I do think we have to be careful at assuming automatically, right, the Chinese will automatically strike Japanese bases. Therefore, the Japanese will automatically enter the war because the Chinese know that if the Japanese enter the war, from their perspective, it's World War Three. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, I, we've alluded to it enough, and I think I'll just tee this up for you guys. Uh, but the war game that we're mentioning, uh, and you can just Google it very easily for our listeners who aren't aware. Uh, but like I said, it was covered even by CNN, so it's sort of a big deal. Um, so the war game that we're mentioning um, is CSIS's China-Taiwan war game. If you just Google that for our listeners, you get context, but it was uh, obviously a big enough deal that even CNN covered it. Um, and their conclusions were that China cannot take Taiwan by force as long as the U.S. and allies intervene, but it's going to come at such a heavy cost that the U.S. will be decimated. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Mike, we're going to lose at least two carriers, like 10 destroyers, um, our Navy will be obliterated, uh, and China will culminate to the point where the CCP will then be at risk of domestic factors that will then uh, either through force or just outright um, uh, animosity be will lose everything there. So the, I mean, the, the entire world, uh, I guess within the Pacific and, and much of Europe, if you know France were intervened, would be changed. It, it would be an absolute paradigm shift. Now, for our listeners who this is the first time hearing this, are probably going, really? That's how we spent millions of dollars to come up with that? But um, so, Dr. Hunzer, if you could just maybe provide so a little more detail and clarity and context on, on what all that was. Yeah, sure. No. So, I mean, I, I'm an academic, so I mostly argue with myself. I'm of two minds of every single thing. I wish I had more than two hands. But I would say, on the one hand, when I read about the CSIS war game, you know, I probably shared everyone else's reaction who's looked at this problem set for more than nine milliseconds said, yeah, no, no shit. This is going to be really nasty, really ugly. And actually, in fact, if anything struck me, it was how low the casualties looked from this ostensibly very rigorous game. Uh, They're saying, you know, the Taiwanese would lose about 3,500. And I'm like, have you been to Taiwan? Like, <laughs> so if you say they're going, the Chinese are going to expend their entire long range or short range missile arsenal on Taiwan, thereby destroying all of its air bases and, and uh, naval assets in the first couple hours of the war. Like, have you set foot on Taiwan and seen where these bases are located? So unless we have really high confidence in the exquisite precision of Chinese munitions and China's willingness to use them exquisitely with precision, uh, the civilian casualties will be horrific. Yeah, because they're so, in the communities, right? Like they're not, it's I, not like airfield on Camp Pendleton that's like. I, I, so I've had my, a team of undergraduates mapping Taiwanese military facilities for about a year now. And I just, these things for the most part, there are some in the mountains, et cetera, et cetera. But these things for the most part are located in dense urban population. Look at a map. And again, until you're kind of there, it, it's hard. 
But we're talking about 23 million people that live in an island roughly the size of Maryland, except they live in a tiny sliver of it that is extraordinarily urbanized. I mean, the wider Taipei metro area has something like 7 million people. Can you imagine missiles raining down at some of the largest military bases to include the ones that hold a lot of the M1 Abrams that we've sold them? They're not there yet, but once they all get there, uh, it's in the middle of a population center. And so, you know, you're not going to be able to take this thing out without taking out lots of civilians. And in fact, there may be virtue in doing so because the IDP, the the uh, the number of people, these types of attacks are going to displace and where they're going to go is just going to cause massive levels of chaos, massive levels of suffering. And of course, it's going to make it really difficult for the Taiwanese military to, to mobilize and maneuver around the island. So, yeah, I just I actually saw these casualty levels and I was like, I'm glad. So that's on the one. On the other hand, I'm like, I'm glad this report's coming out. Because if these casualty levels are sufficient to shock American policymakers and American voters into paying attention to damn, that's great. Uh, I just hope policymakers look like or realize, at least my estimate, humbly, is that the losses would be much higher. And I guess this would go to the other thing that I really had some heartburn with for the war game. Like any war game, and they're very good, very explicit, like we look at this, not that. Uh, they scope the war game, I think, in a meticulous, analytically rigorous way, and that should be applauded. But in doing so, they scope out, I think, the biggest problems of a Taiwan war. So, for example, they say we're going to look at this uh, without looking at nuclear escalation. I don't think you can look at the Taiwan issue without looking at nuclear escalation. Certainly not if you've been reading about what the Chinese are doing with their nuclear arsenal. Or if you just look at this rationally, nuclear weapons are for defending the homeland. They see Taiwan as the homeland. In what world would they think that this is a case of extended deterrence? And so if we're looking at this problem set without having a plan ready to go for how we're going to deal with at least nuclear saber rattling, if not nuclear demonstration, if not nuclear use, then I don't know the actual policy utility for politicians who have to make decisions. Because remember, at the end of the day, the Chinese are going to want to try to convince not just Washington, but also Seoul and Canberra and Tokyo not to intervene. And if all of the analysis coming out of Washington says, well, we could win operationally in a conventional war, then the Chinese are just going to scratch their head and say, well, then... Maybe we need to take this thing to the next level. Yeah, so yeah, what's our incentive to keep this thing on the ground? And, and the second piece that I really had some problems with is they scoped this again. I understand why, but they scoped this as looking at the first phase of the invasion, the Chinese lose in a couple of weeks. I'm like, but that's not the end of the war. And even how they, they, they tie the first battle of the next war. And we have to remember there's that next war afterwards. And Xi Jinping, assuming he somehow survives that near-term operational loss, he's not stopping. At that point, he can't stop. The history of warfare suggests when great powers, you know, when the Germans went to invade France in the beginning of the First World War and they failed at the Battle of the Marne, they didn't stop, take their things and go home saying shenanigans, you know, oh, crap. Uh, rather, we're going to see some sort of a regrouping and a redoubling. And at that point, this Pyrrhic victory becomes very problematic because they lost ships and we lost ships. Well, who's in a better position to reconstitute those capabilities? Right, right. Um, William, what are you thinking about like the value of wargaming in this? So I guess in in a you know, Mike, you'd mentioned like, well, this is an eye opener for policymakers. We probably take for granted um, that we see the world through the same lens as policymakers, right? As service okay. members, the people associated with the military, uh, uh, you, you know, you you kind of go like, really, you guys didn't figure this out. Um, but at the same time, like there's still value. And we talked before the show, like, you know, if I'm boxing, I'll tell you all day long, you're going to get hit in the face. But once you get hit in the face, you go, oh, shit. Yeah, now I got to I got to remember, keep my hands up like that hurt a lot. Um, I don't know. Is there what do you think, William? Is there value in this wargaming? So 
Uh, value in wargaming as a whole, uh, it's sort of I, how I can extrapolate it is as, as two primary purposes. One, so, sort of for the lower level, where you're just getting your reps and, reps and sets in, just problem-solving solutions um, based within based within a game, within constrictions. And those constrictions are both, you know, have positive and negative effects. Now, this type of wargaming on the more, like, strategic operational level, large-scale for policymakers, its use becomes a bit more fuzzy because you're not necessarily doing it for reps and, reps and sets. You're doing it almost in a predictive measure. Like, if this does happen, how will this happen? What will this cause and effects be? What will be the consequences? And where will we go from there? And so it, you're not doing it necessarily for educational. You're doing it for determining policy. So how is it helpful? Um, well, in the sense, yes, it's all you could all, overestimate your opponent's capabilities, and that might help you later down the road. Like, for instance, when we talk about the uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia, it seems like we overpredicted Russia's capabilities, which is good for us because it allowed us to communicate popular Ukraine and help, you know, shape the war in in United States, NATO, Ukrainian favor, which is good. Um, but but that that wasn't the predictive nature of that wasn't helpful in predicting how it would actually happen. So it, it sort of misled a lot of people in in our policy. Um, in which case it was for good. Now in the in the case of China and, and Taiwan, um, we have to ask ourselves to what uh, extent does this reflect China's true capabilities? And as, as Dr. Hunter mentioned. Um, it's very easy to start a war. It's hard to predict where a war is going to go. No one's no. There has been almost no instance of history where anyone's predicted if we just do this action, this action will happen and it will res respond in our favor. I mean, things are, are known historically to go uh, wide off course, and because war games are they're games. They have they have they have rules. They have structure. War doesn't necessarily have rules or structure to it as well. So uh, this is just because it resulted in this way, as as you said, that within a few weeks. American Chinese capabilities are 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 are, are cut down significantly. Taiwan's a, a pile of rubble. Um, what does that mean for the for the long term? Is, is China going to still be involved? Is the American public going to want to? We don't know. Which also brings the fact like these war games are poor in predicting the moral nature of warfare. Civilians, policymakers, well, how are they going to respond once once these events happen? So to answer your, your question, I guess succinctly, Vic. Uh, it's good that they're happening. It's good war games being conducted. It's good policymakers have something to base it off of. I mean, these are these are highly complex tools. They are, but that's what that's what they are. They're tools. They're not oh, no, a one size fit all tool. They're helpful for guiding, but in terms of how we're actually can, uh, going to go forth uh, from them, it's good to keep in your in the back of your mind, but still look at other ulterior ways of how we're going to figure out the situation. And then, so I guess from your uh, standpoint, then Mike, like from a, I guess a policy, and then again, like trying to predict policy and in, in the behavior of policymakers, right? Like the one thing we know for sure that they'll do is whatever it takes to stay in power, right? That's the only prediction, that's the only guarantee. But at the same time, I guess thinking of that, then if we were to look at then look into this thing, and there, maybe there is that like light bulb moment or that eye opening moment. <clears throat> Would they then go, or what do you think the chances are they go, this is just way too expensive. You can saber rattle, but if this goes down, we are not going to get involved because we cannot sustain this, even if we quote unquote win. Yeah, I, so I guess I, I, I share many of most all, probably all of, of, of William's opinions on this. I, 
when it comes to wargaming, I use wargames in all of my undergraduate and graduate classes because I think it is great at training, for getting your reps in, training the mind to deal with uncertainty and to make decisions and to be okay with making bad decisions because that's, you know, the, the, the enemy has a say. And that's that's not something I think certainly in strategic education you can learn from a book. You can't learn it from a graduate seminar or discussion. I love them for that purpose. I get way, like, like William, I get way more... Uh, skeptical when we start using them for predictive purposes. I guess everyone likes to intone Eisenhower, plans are useless, planning is everything. So from that perspective, I think wargaming can be useful, helping you to challenge your own assumptions, to kind of figure out areas in which you need to have your branch plans, you know, your contingency plans by saying, well, what if they did this? Let's at least let's at least think through it so we've got something we can pull off the shelf if we've got a call an audible in the middle of a conflict. Uh, my heartache with wargames is that the way they're often used in DC is not in that sort of let's be intellectually honest and rigorous and challenge our assumptions and come up with branch plans, but rather it's a way to say I have this preconceived uh, notion um, and I need this this thing to and so there you know again a game I'm building up these things to know that you can build a game to do whatever it is you want to do and uh, you you could misrepresent that as being oh this is one of the parameters I needed to keep this thing realistic but really what it's doing is steering things in a certain direction you can also adjudicate games and so from that perspective and again I I want to cast no aspirations on CSIS's intent. I'm, I'm sure they weren't attempting to do this, but I do know it's a challenge with all wargaming is you, you can you can, you can can bake certain outcomes into it to show, well, we need to buy this particular long-range missile because this long-range missile does all sorts of things that without this long-range missile, uh, and then it just becomes a part of the echo chamber problem. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's where I start to worry. So what does that all mean for policymakers? My guess is that wargaming, when it comes to the highest levels of national command authority, like do we intervene or do we, I'm guessing they have almost... No impact whatsoever in that initial decision. My hope is just we've done enough of these rigorous things that when we make contact with the enemy, when we get punched in the face, like Mike Tyson says, we're like, oh, plans out the window. Uh, we've thought through enough of these things that we got some things we can pull off of a shelf that we have developed from some of these war games. Yeah, um, I mean, and I guess along those lines, I think even the one of the articles uh, we were looking at in gearing up for this had said, like, I think the closing line is like, victory. Sometimes is not enough. Uh, and so we had to definitely like a push towards deterrence. Like we need to build up deterrence. And it, like, you know, in the background, it was like um, that Saturday Night Live skit of like Mr. Subliminal, like, you know, like acquisitions, 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 you know, like we need to buy stuff now. Um, so yeah, I definitely think there's an overlay there. Uh, but I really appreciate uh, both of you guys' perspective, especially. Uh, for our listeners, and like myself, who are fairly unused to uh, this sort of uh, wargaming scene. Like, obviously, uh, Mike, you and I know sand table exercises, uh, but that's, you don't, enemy doesn't necessarily get a, a say in that. And then we just started introducing red teaming um, stuff as I was getting out, uh, you know, as becoming more of a cubicle gnome than an operator. <laughs> um but there was a lot of red cell stuff going on, and that was cool. So when we talk wargaming, this is a question for both you guys. Are we talking like adaptive technologies that actually do occupy the headspace of the enemy, or is there just a blue team that puts on red jerseys sort of thing uh, and then sort of go through it? So, I mean, essentially, even if you have an expert on tactic, you know, uh, sort of opposition tactics, techniques, and procedures, the worldview lens is still very much of the allied force, right? Like, I don't know. Is is that even a question? I don't know. 
Well, I, I you know, I, I do some work. I'm a non-resident fellow with the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, not to be confused with CSIS, CISSPSC, NAS, or CNA. Um, it, it, you know, I think some of, the, some of these organizations, I'm sure CSIS is the same way, they really do go a long way into trying to make sure that when they run some of these rigorous war games, they bring in, so if you're going to have the Japanese Self-Defense Force in the game, you bring in Japanese Self-Defense Force officers to, to role play. I run some simulations for the NATO Defense College over the years, and so it's really cool there because when you're running these things for NATO Defense and you want to have France in the game, well, you have some French officers who are role playing there. Uh, the challenge, of course, is, is say the Chinese perspective or the Russian perspective. Uh, there certainly can help to have like somebody from the Japanese Self Defense Force or for Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense probably does a better job of channeling the Chinese mindset than say some American, no matter how much they've studied. But I would agree, you still can't ever with 100% rigor replicate the mindset of the true red team uh because you know if you could they wouldn't probably be red right <laughs> yeah to, to tag along with that i mean part of i think the idea that it is a a, a war game where there is a a winner and a loser that, that the nature of competition itself could be helpful and yeah it, it is reinforced if you have someone who's an expert in um chinese uh doctrine tactics strategy etc as they do for us in, in, in their in their training uh, in preparation against United States forces. I mean, they have their their they have their own red team, blue team over there, which is I would you know you could argue pretty well founded. And I understand. I believe. I mean, with the amount of money and research and expertise we have, we can have individuals who can war game and 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 do their best. Now, you also I mean, you're not going to have that moral factor, but I think with the nature of understanding the capabilities and trying to win. Uh, for the for the for the, the sense of winning itself uh, can be helpful. So, so there's always a sense of like um, uh, that it's 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 not entirely 100. You can't you can't replicate 100% realism, but you can with a certain level of understanding um, that you get pretty close, and it's worth going through the reps. Um, my question then for you guys, both of you guys, then is like. This came. This was under a grant through a fellowship. Is this money well spent? Given that the conclusion for most people was like, yeah, no shit. Um, and if not, what what could we have done that maybe gets us in uh, gets us in a better position? So I'll answer your question, but first, I actually wanted to go back to just uh, the sure, point yeah. that came up in the last, and then I'll come come back around. I so I would say. One of the other, I think, benefits, because it's just thrown a lot of skepticism towards war games, but one of the other benefits, and this very much goes into that trainer piece of what they do, is I, I think really twofold. Number one, even if you can't, and you can't ever fully replicate the mind of the other, because I don't know what the hell's going on in Xi Jinping's mind, nobody does. Um, one of the benefits is you just, you, you do insert the other into the game. So you have an actual strategic interaction. And right, even professionals who've been doing this for a long time, we keep saying, all right, war is not about imposing your will on it. But we, generally speaking, tend to stereotype our plans and just assume our plan is going to proceed and the enemy is going to do the things. It's just human nature to do that. And so any war game, even if you have somebody who knows nothing about the role they're playing, just to have that free will in there, really doing what they can to throw a wrench in your plans. And I can't tell you how many times I have these undergrads and graduate students, maybe they come from the intelligence community. They're like, China wouldn't do that. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not China you're facing. You're, you're facing Bill and Bill's playing the role of China. So deal with what Bill just did to you because your plan sucks, given how Bill responded. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that's useful, it's one of the reasons I love doing it with students, is one thing you can add in it. So you can't add in the realism of war and fear and terror. It's not like you can walk around punching people in the back of the head while they're playing the game. Uh, 
but, and this is actually one of the things I didn't like about the CSIS game. They made it really clear. We ran these iterations 24 times. To do it 24 times, the game had to last a day. But the war isn't going to last a day. And part of the reality isn't just the culture, but it's the literal sheer exhaustion mm -hmm. the decision makers have to face. And so one of the things you can do, so when I run games with my undergraduates, I set aside the last two weeks of every semester, and I run the game, and I let the game run 24-7. And I will tell you, I mean, some of my undergraduates look like they're graduate students by the end of this thing because they're really playing hard and they realize how hard it is day three, day five, day 10 of the game to kind of stay engaged, to really pay attention to all the things that are happening around. And so I think that training aspect is, is, is awesome. To your actual question, though, I would say at the end of the day, you know, it's money well spent. I think to you and I, the size of that grant would probably be mind blowing. You're like, you paid that much money for this. But if we look at how much money was probably spent in this war game and compare that to, say, the defense budget or the budget <laughs> of, the, of that, I mean, really, it's pennies on the dollar. I'm sure we could have been more efficient. I'm sure CSIS had the finest catered meals for every single. So it probably could have, you know, spent less money, but it was some rich donors cash anyway. Uh, so when you compare it to sort of what we might have otherwise spent that money on, uh, I, I, I think it's a pretty useful return on investment. Yeah, sort of uh, pair what uh, what uh, Dr. Hunziger said. Um, yeah, every penny that we didn't give to homeless people, you know, is wasted. But in the pragmatist, like you know, good American patriot trying to better my country's position in the world, uh, I, I think it, it 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 was good in the sense where it allows then you know they can forward this report to our, our nation's leaders, and then they they have to actually rationally figure out the the consequences of escalation. Uh, and, and and hopefully that point is given across. I mean, just by I, the, the true almost pyrrhic nature of an American victory in Taiwan, and that maybe we can have cooler heads uh, go forward than actually think about consequences. And also, I mean, this is also providing to some extent reps and sets on how a conflict with China would un unfold. And this is this is definitely not going to be the last war game. And I imagine there's going to be another one coming on re relatively soon with notes and information and, and critiques based off the previous one and where to go forward. And as, as we unravel more of China's capabilities and, and willpower uh, going forward in the future with, with more information that comes in, uh, this will be an important step on, on, on the building block for, for building our own capabilities. Yeah, uh, oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, I, I know would say, certainly if you're Lockheed Martin and building the LRASM, like this was an excellent return on investment, like talk <laughs> about a plug for that bad boy. Yeah, for sure. Well, at the same time, too, um, I mean, I guess in the spirit of, de of deterrence, it sort of is also gives a signal to China like, hey, we're taking this serious. Like, we're actually going to do as much as we absolutely can to prepare for this thing without actually shooting you guys or shooting at you guys. So, like, don't F around. Like, we're going to be as ready as we absolutely can. So if you do this thing, regardless of whether you think we'll actually do something, we will be ready or at least as ready as we can be. Oh, for sure. And that is the part that is the logic of deterrence. But the thing is, and, you know, I'm not the only one to hark on this. It, uh, talk is cheap. War games are only slightly more expensive. So really, if we want to show the Chinese how ready we are for this, I mean, we're talking changes to forced posture. We're talking sort of the dramatic transformations that are politically costly and bureaucratically challenging, like force design 2030. And, you know, I don't know how much time we have, but, you know, talking through some of the things that Taiwan's military is doing, but also still needs to do. Because part of what we have to look at is to really make good on the things that we are saying we're going to do. It's going to take some profound changes in military bureaucracies and procurement and acquisitions and doctrine and training and infrastructure that are going to take years to unfold. 
And I think what concerns some of us is if you start to lay out these timelines and look at where the starting points for Taiwan's military and America's military and Japanese military and China's military are, those trend lines point to kind of this uncanny, difficult valley where China may not be ready, but it is more ready than we are at a certain point in the next five to 10 years. Because uh, a lot of our stuff that we're really investing in is not going to really come online till the 2030s. And that could make for a very dangerous few years uh, for that entire relationship. Yeah, and I think also that one thing that's baked into that, that the, the, at least the Chinese can rely on, is, is that we have a ton of leadership turnover in that time period. Uh, whereas, you know, as an authoritarian, autocratic regime, it's the same dude because he, didn't, he ain't giving up his power and nobody's voting him out or, you know, he ain't retiring. And so, and, and they don't have obviously the bureaucracy either. So, I mean, not only is there consistency, but there's a streamlined process. Now, we can get into the ins and outs of quality, but definitely from a quantity standpoint, uh, it's like you said, like a reconstitution standpoint, they're much better for, they're a firmer footing for 2030 than we will be and our allies will be. Is that, isn't that right? I mean, that, that's certainly, that's certainly my read on the situation. And, Let's be honest, the, the average person, listen, the average person in China and, and the United States doesn't really think about this problem set at all, I would venture to say. But uh, certainly it means a lot more to Beijing and it means a lot more to the average person in China than it does to the average person in the United States. And maybe that is one of the virtues of the CSI's report is for better or for worse, maybe the casualty counts that come out of this will shock some Americans into at least paying attention to the issue. Uh, but it, it remains to be seen, you know, at the end of the day, if push comes to shove, especially if we're talking things like nuclear saber rattling. It, is Washington going to be willing to trade Honolulu or Los Angeles or Tokyo for Taipei? Uh, and that may be a bet that Beijing is willing to wager. Mm. Well, dude, this has been fascinating. We are coming up on some time, but I know we wanted to talk some of the NDA, NDEA, also a lot of the activity that's been going on. Um, if you could just talk maybe very briefly about some of those things, especially with you being boots on the ground, during some of these like flyover incidences and sort of Chinese responses to war gaming and the NDEA. Um, yeah, it's so just uh, floors yours here for the next, you know, five, 10 minutes. <laughs> you said be brief, Vic, and you know me better than that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I meant put yeah. on briefs because I know you're <laughs> yeah, I'm about to say four hours later, your poor <laughs> listeners have crashed their cars into trees. Uh, I, I guess I would just say there are probably two things for those who want to pay attention to this, this challenge, uh, two important recent developments, although if you're paying attention, you probably already know about them, but but whatever, preach to the choir. Uh, but worth kind of highlighting, the first is at the very end of last year, obviously, President Biden signed the National Defense Authorization Act into law, you know, all the old authorizations, not yet appropriations, uh, pay for the Pentagon and everything else. An important piece of that monstrous bill uh, were some provisions from a piece of legislation known as the Taiwan Policy Act, which uh, a committee in the Senate voted on, but then it did never make it to the floor, but they took some important provisions. They rolled it into the NDAA. I, I just think that, that people ought to be aware of these. So like, for example, we have authorized the United States government now to give Taiwan $2 billion per year in grants, aka not loans. So in essence, give them $2 billion. Some of that they can spend on their own defense. The rest of it, they can buy weapons from us uh, to do that for the next five years. So in essence, $10 billion. And just to keep things in perspective, you know, Taiwan's overall defense budget, some are $15, $16 billion a year, depending how you want to count it. Uh, we also authorized a $2 billion loan to Taiwan to buy weapons. We 
Also, and I think this is really important, I'm working on an article on this right now, we authorize Taiwan to be a part of the IMET program. In essence, now we can do militarized military training with them to help them. And a uh, billion dollars in presidential drawdown authority, that's the same thing we see being used in Ukraine to basically take existing stockpiles of munitions and capabilities and then rapidly get them to Taiwan. Because, you know, one of the one of the big lessons we're learning from watching what happens in Ukraine is Taiwan will not enjoy the benefit of having Poland next door where we can shuffle weapons and munitions through. So Taiwan goes to war with what it has, not with what it wished it had. And so, you know, some of these I think are great moves. Personally, though, the one thing I really wish we could have seen in that bill were some sort of conditional strings at the minimum saying, we'll give you $2 billion per year, which is a massive amount of money, but we expect that you will only buy these things with them. Uh, maybe those messages were transmitted in, in private. But again, I kind of think at this point, we've seen the Ministry of National Defense drag its feet enough that this probably needed to be said in, in public. So either way, $10 billion, you might pejoratively call it a blank check, but but either way, let's hope Taiwan spends that money wisely. The other big development, I think even bigger news and more reason for optimism is at the very end of last year, I think it was December 27th, I just, just arrived, uh, but President Tsai, announced that she was going to extend conscription. And this is a huge deal. So Taiwan's had conscription for forever, really. Uh, but under the Chen Shui-bian and Ma years, uh, basically conscription was reduced, made shorter and shorter and shorter until it basically became four months. And so males served for, for four months. And everyone sort of made fun of the concept because it, it, the training was was ridiculous. Most conscripts saw it as being a waste of their time. It was actually quite demoralizing. Nobody thought the conscripts would be ready for war. And then they had this whole problem with mobilizing reserves. So President Tsai announces kind of this four-part major reform. Uh, one piece where she said, basically, frontline combat would now be handled exclusively by the all-volunteer force, of about 180,000, give or take. So there was no more sort of wishful thinking about bringing conscripts and reservists into the frontline fighting force. I think with this recognition that if a war happens, some pieces of it may happen quickly. You may not be able to, to certainly activate your reservists, let alone make sure your conscripts were ready to go. She then said there's the standing garrison force, you know, protecting infrastructure, helping with homeland defense. That was the mission that was supposed to go to the reserves. She said, now that mission's, we're not going to have enough time to mobilize reserves. We're going to give that mission to the conscripts. But to get the conscripts ready, we're going to move from four months of conscription to 12 months. And that's a big deal, you know, especially if you were born after the year 2005, starting next year, you now, instead of having to give up four months of your life, you've got to give up a year. Uh, but... It's a very important development, certainly from a signaling perspective, because right, this is telling Beijing, not only are we saying we're going to fight, but we're putting our money where our mouth is. We're making a politically costly move, one which, although it's popular with the island writ large, not terribly popular with kind of the younger people who are going to be subject to it. But, you know, President Tsai is willing to take the flack from that. It's important. And she made a couple of other important reforms with it. So I think this is, this is, is good news. It suggests the degree to which Taiwan is increasingly taking some of these issues very seriously and willing to put some real political capital behind it. Uh, I would just say, though, and anybody you know who follows these issues closely will be well aware, you know, it's one thing to just say we're going to triple the length of conscription. It's another thing to actually make that training realistic and rigorous and to make sure they've got the weapons and the munitions. And so there the jury is certainly out. President Tsai, when announcing it, said that she had directed the Ministry of National Defense and National Security Council to find ways to make training more realistic, you know, talk more to Americans, train more with Americans. This is all good news. Uh, but again, I would maintain just a dose of healthy skepticism because the Ministry of National Defense for years has just, it's, it's drug its feet on all sorts of reforms and changes. And so to expect all of a sudden the ministry to do this cheetah flip and go from sort of this facile stereotype training that really is useless to everybody and out of the blue, take this massive influx of conscripts 
extend their training three times as long, find bases that aren't there and training areas that aren't there to use munitions they don't have and rifles that may not exist uh, to make that training rigorous. You know, that's going to be a heck of a leap. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I really hope the U.S. is working closely and pushing. And this is coming back to the NDAA, where I really wish we'd put a few more strings on this money, uh, as well as I, I, I'm sure we are going to put more resources into helping with that process. Yeah, and also, too, I mean, you know, and, and granted, it seems like a ton of money, obviously, for us, um, but, you know, $2 billion, if they don't use it wisely, they could just end up with, like, two F-35s that are going to get blown up in the first 30 seconds of the war. So it's like, well, all right, let's just make sure that the, this is going in the places I, we need it to go. Well, and, and that's why I just— we all in the, in, in the U.S., we have a tendency of seeing from our allies and partners what we want to see. And I do. I, I can kind of already see the punditry saying, well, Taiwan has extended conscription, therefore they're embracing asymmetry. And those are two different questions, uh, because you can definitely see a world in which they extend conscription and make the training realistic, but it is symmetric. It's we're going to fight on the beaches. And I, I, I will say, I think the jury's very much out on the embrace of asymmetry. For example, just this week in Kaohsiung, a southern port city in Taiwan, the Navy held this big demonstration with a 10,000-ton LPD that they built and said, look at this asymmetric weapon that we have. And any Marine knows an LPD is many things, but asymmetric is not one of them unless asymmetry is defined as being a coral reef at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, <laughs> but so even still, we kind of see this attempt to basically say, well, we'll just we'll use the buzzwords we know the Americans want to hear, uh, but we're just going to go ahead and do what we want to do anyway. So that's the piece where the jury's still out. That training and the infrastructure and the doctrine, all that stuff's got to change. Some of it, I think, will. Some of it, you know, this is where I think some arm twisting is gonna is gonna need to happen. And weren't you weren't you writing a book about this? Yeah. So I, I so I have a, a book I wrote a few years ago, a monograph with some of my graduate students who just happen to be retired military officers, called "The Question of Time," in which we kind of outline this asymmetric posture, literally unbeknownst to us, even though we met with the head doctrinal planner of the Taiwanese military when we were in Taiwan doing interviews for this project in 2018. Us, this is the exact same time that Admiral Li Ximin is unveiling the overall defense concept, which was his internal blueprint. Uh, I had, I've met with Admiral Lee a few times. We've written a piece together. Uh, it is interesting the degree to which that monograph that we wrote and his overall defense concept like literally line up uh, side by side. But of course, and I've talked, I think, in previous podcasts, uh, Admiral Lee was quickly castigated. He was kind of ostracized by the Taiwanese military. They chucked him out. And so still, the Taiwanese military has learned to say we want asymmetry, but, you know, and every, every time we, we go ahead and say, oh, yeah, but we'll sell you one more batch of tanks or one more batch of Sidewinder missiles, uh, it just kicks this problem set down the road. And as the Marine Corps knows from Force Design 23, right, these types of changes, you can't make them on a dime. And the Taiwanese military, I think, is even more tradition-bound, bureaucratic and backwards-looking. And so, you know, they've learned certainly to say asymmetry. I want to see them do it because I want deterrence to, I want deterrence to work. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we're seeing, um, obviously we talked Ukraine and Russia enough, but I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to be taken for that. And uh, hopefully the Taiwanese are paying attention. Uh, William, you got anything else as we're wrapping up here? Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, you want them to spend money in the right place. What is the right place? How should they spend their money? For all those Taiwanese listening to us right now. <laughs> for, yeah, it Hunziker has tens of fans, most of which are related to him. Uh, most of his students even know his name. I would say <laughs> doctrine and training, doctrine and training, doctrine and training, and then enabling capabilities. I, Whatever Taiwan needs, more stuff is not it. So I'm glad that we're giving $2 billion to buy stuff that won't show up until 2035 at this point anyway, even if we built it tomorrow. Uh, 
you know, a lot of the things that we're talking about, the harpoon weapon sales, all this stuff's not showing up 25, 26, 2027, 2028, 2030 at this point. Um, more stuff is not what they need. What they need now is an overarching doctrine, preferably the overall defense concept. But if that thing is, you know, if it's just, if it's like the scarlet A of asymmetry, then that's fine. Come up with a different, but an overarching doctrinal concept, one that makes sense and is preferably asymmetric in nature. And then a series of operational fighting, war fighting concepts that are based on that, and then training regimens at the tactical level, the operational level, and the strategic level for the tactical decision makers, for the theater commanders, for the political authorities based on that, that they really can train to. Um, so really at this point, they've got, I think, the weapons they need. We need to get them the munitions and that sort of thing, the enabling capabilities. But it's really this, what are you going to do with that stuff when push comes to shove? And can you demonstrate proficiency with it so that the Chinese don't think they're going to be able to get the drop on you. And now maybe the closing would be my one last quibble with the CSIS war game is it made all sorts of assumptions about Taiwan's ground defenses, streaming to the beaches and then fighting resolutely. I don't know how much time they've taken looking at the Taiwanese army, uh, but I, I did a panel a couple of months ago with some Taiwanese officers where they came and they talked about the Taiwanese military. And let's just say uh, my assessment of the Taiwanese army's ability to defend is vastly different than I think what was baked into the CSIS set of assumptions. All right, man. So, uh, dude, again, this is great. This is, see, I love these conversations, man. And hopefully um, our readers or our listeners are taking away as much from this free class, man. This is like a free graduate level class, dude. So, but thank you for taking the time. Um, you, What's next? So you are back in-person classes soon? Yeah, our, our semester at George Mason kicks off, I think, a week from Monday, so I am back to putting young undergraduates to sleep uh, twice per week. So yeah, free class or you know you paid with your time either way. It's it's been a pleasure here jawjacking with you, and as always, you know lots of great ideas come out of it. And I hope at some point you know we can do this thing in person. Yeah, absolutely, and then get that beer we keep talking about. Um, William, got anything else, man? No, thanks for coming back on, and again, hope we can get you in in, in the studio to so get the the full the full Marine Corps Association uh, experience. The experience of seven one five South Broadway, baby. <laughs> nice. I, I'm I'm too old for burpees, man. I'm too old. And by the way, William, please, for the love of God, it's Mike. Stop calling me Doctor Unzicker. Yeah, but I, man, you earned. The, I, I call you Doctor Mike. Like you know, if, if you got it, you know, wear it. Sounds like I'm, a podiatrist uh, putting out if, a new if, shoe. Thankfully, my wife's at the hospital because if she were at home right now, she would come bashing through the windows, put me in a choke, and be like, you are not a real doctor. So she would quibble with your assertion that I have earned it. So uh, Dr. Well, Mike will compromise. We're actually going to get the other Dr. Mike here on the, sh on the show soon, too. I mean, the yeah. other Dr. Hunziker. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of doctors really. running through the, the Hunziker clan. Yeah, we are, we are learned folk. Learned <laughs> folk. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you so much again. Uh, and look forward to, uh, yeah, doing this in person soon. Awesome, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Bye. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.